Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus. As you do, I want to issue a word of welcome. Encouraged to see everyone here. Hope you're doing well. I absolutely love Sundays. They are my favorite day of the week. Favorite time to be able to gather together um, to be with the church family. My only uh, dislike of it is I'm not able to have that one-on-one conversation with everybody um, on a Sunday morning. So if there's been a time where we haven't been able to connect or want to reconnect, uh, let's be able to have those moments to kind of to get back together or have coffee, ask questions. We can set those up over the coming weeks. We'd love to do that. Um, want to make one quick announcement, draw your attention to one announcement to mark your calendars for Sunday, March 10th. Uh, from 3 to 5 p.m. for another uh, family fellowship that we're going to be doing. We have reserved 24 lanes at Northside Bowling in Winchester. Um, and so we're going to have a time where the cost is only $5 per person or 25 for a family for two hours of unlimited bowling. You don't have to pay for your shoes. It's all included in that cost. Um, and we're just going to get together um, and have a good lighthearted fellowship to, together, show off our mad bowling skills, um, which I have none. Um, so everybody get a good laugh there. But it's just a fun time for us to kind of take over the bowling alley and have fun together. Uh, if you're interested in being a part of that, please go to our website, sign up online. Um, All you have to do is say, yes, we're coming, and this is how many people, and that will let us know kind of how many to prepare for, if we need to reduce the number of lanes or add more lanes and kind of go from there. Uh, But with that said, to the task at hand this morning, turning your Bibles to the book of Exodus, where today we're continuing to look at Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. A scene that started at the beginning of chapter 3 and now has continued all the way into chapter 4 up to verse 17 where we will kind of conclude the end of our sermon today where God has appeared to Moses and he's telling him, I'm about to fulfill all all the promises that I have made to Moses. I've already grown this nation, this people into a great nation. Now I'm going to deliver them from slavery as I've promised. I'm going to then take you into the promised land to give you the land that is flowing of milk and honey. Leaving Moses thinking at this point, like, man, this is good news. I'm excited about this. This is great. Awesome. Can't wait for this to happen. But then leaves Moses here in chapter 10 verse chapter 3 verse 10 God tells Moses here exactly how he's going to do that and he tells him I'm going to send you Moses I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and you're going to be the one who who I do this through and that's where I picture Moses kind of having one of those moments where his mouth drops and he goes say what Like, say that again, like you're going to use me to do what? And then we proceed with a litany of five excuses or objections as to why he can't do what God is calling him to do. Now, we've already looked at the first three in the previous two weeks or the last two weeks, but just kind of a quick recap here. First, Moses is asking, first Moses asking in chapter three, verse 11 here, kind of like, who am I? Who am am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the the children of Israel out of of Egypt? Like, who am I to do this? Have you seen my resume, God? Like, how am I qualified to do this? And do you remember God's response in verse 12? He said, Moses, kind of like a a, a don't worry. I I will be with you. Moses, I, I will be with you. Which in reality is like, what more does anyone need than knowing that, that God is with us? What more do we need other than that? But that's not enough for Moses. So he comes back in verse 13 with, if I come to the people, 
And notice how he says, if. Like he literally is saying, well, if I do this, still contemplating in his mind whether or not he's going to do this. If I do this and they ask me your name, well, what do I tell them? What do I, what do I say? And he comes back and he tells him, God tells him, I tell them I am has sent me to you. Tell them I be who I be has sent me to you. Tell them that the eternal, self-existent, transcendent, holy creator of all things has sent me to you. Again, that should be sufficient, right? That should be sufficient in and of itself of, of enough that God is sending me to you. And then God goes on to tell Moses exactly what to speak, what to say, how the, the people are going to respond, and how he ensures that his people will be delivered and provided for. He tells them all of these things. And how does Moses re- then respond? Like, okay, God, I'm ready to go. Nope, with another excuse. Mind you, God has guaranteed that the elders of Israel will listen to him. But remember how Moses responds in chapter four, verse one. But behold, Moses here speaking to God, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Which is like, are you kidding me? Like really, God has just told you that they are going to listen to your voice, has guaranteed that they will listen to your voice. And you are questioning whether or not they will listen to your voice. Are you kidding me? But we have to be very careful of being too critical of pointing our, our finger at Moses here. It's easy to do. But if we're pointing our finger at Moses here, we have to remember that we're pointing, our, 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 we are pointing three fingers just right back at ourselves. Because think about all, all the things that God has told us to do, told you to do over the years that we have had excuse after excuse and objection after objection of telling him, yeah, I can't do that. Yeah, I can't, I can't do that. We've all had it. So how does the Lord respond to, to Moses' third objectionable excuse here? Way better than I would have. He gives him grace. Graciously gives him signs to do before the people. Why does he give them the signs? Why does he give them these demonstrations of, of a staff turning into a snake and then turning back into a staff? And why does he give them the sign of a leprous hand being in his coat and coming out and being healed and, and the water being toned down on the, from a cup being onto the ground and turning to blood? Why does he give them these signs? Why does he give us the sign of the resurrection? That we may believe. He gives them the signs that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to him. Give them these signs. And in all this, God is teaching Moses and he's teaching us that God's people will believe God's word. We preach the gospel. We preach the crucified and risen Christ. May sound foolish to those who are perishing, but those who are being saved will believe. They will believe. And those who are not God's people won't. But above all else, God is saying here, I will be with you. I will be with you. I'm going to give you the words to say. I'm going to be with you in this. And that brings us to Moses' final two objections, picking up in verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? 
Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. So two more objections, two more excuses that Moses is offering up to God here. One being, oh my, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech and, and of tongue. And the other being, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Paraphrase these as I can't and I don't want to. That, that's what we have here Moses giving to God. So we're going to look at the I can't first. I can't. And, and as we do, we think about all the things that we have said you have said, we all have said, I can't do this. We've thought about it, got things that God has called us to do, and we're like, yeah, I can't do that. Things he's told us, to, like impressing upon our hearts, things he's revealed clearly through his word, we're like, yeah, I, I can't do that. We all have them, every single one of us. Let me be clear, this isn't intended to be a guilt exercise. My aim isn't to see how, how guilt-ridden I can make us as a congregation and be like, hey, look at all the barriers that we're disobeying God. No, but to, to point them out, to realize this is where we need to trust Him, depend upon Him, rest in Him more so in our obedience. And I'm chiefly including myself into this in a very, very high degree, thinking about all the things over the years that God has called me to do that I haven't, whether perceivably big or small. I mean, just the times where God is saying, pressing upon your heart, share the gospel with this person. Like clear as day, like share the gospel with this person. And I'm coming up with excuses in my mind of why I can't. I've got, I'm busy. Maybe they, they, they're, they're, they look like they're busy and they're not going to be receptive and, and all these different things. And it's like, ah, doing what seems more practical, easy, with my own comfortable wheelhouse, if you will, and and not what I know God is calling me to do. There's times where you're letting my, your fears and your weaknesses and your own logic, however illogical that logic may be, drive our decision-making over obedience to the will of God. We've all been there. But again, this is not intended to be a guilt exercise, but a genuine introspective look and understanding that everything we're looking at here with Moses applies to us as well. So we look at Moses and he's like, I can't do that. I can't. And what's his reasoning here? He says, because he's not eloquent enough. And he's slow of speech and of tongue. Now, of course, he has no problem using his mouth to question God. He's using his mouth as his excuse. I can't do this because I'm not eloquent. I can't do this because I'm slow of speech and of tongue. But at the same time, notice how he's using his mouth to articulate why he can't do what God has called him to do. It's like somebody telling you, hey, you're saying, I can't write. But you write somebody a letter to tell them that you can't write. Like you may not be able to write well, but clearly because you wrote the letter, you can write. Moses may not be able to speak eloquently, but clearly he can speak. 
Notice how God is saying nothing about, elo- nothing about eloquence here. That's coming out of Moses' mouth. All God is saying is, do this. I'm going to give you the words to say. But let's say that Moses actually did have a speech impediment or a disability of some kind, whatever this is inferred to be. Or, or maybe it's an overall lack of confidence. Maybe it's a lack of confidence in his ability to do what God is calling him to do. I can empathize with that. I think we can empathize with that. He's scared. Okay. Or maybe Moses was expressing language deficiency. Maybe he's saying, hey, I grew up in the home of Pharaoh. I don't speak Hebrew well enough to be able to go and to be among the Israelites. Or maybe he's saying, I've been Midian now for the last 40 years. My Egyptian's not that good. Whatever excuse that he's throwing out there could be any of these things, could be none of these things. Ultimately, we don't know what Moses is referring to here. And you know what? Ultimately, it doesn't matter. People will spend all time talking about and trying to decipher what about this and what about that and what about this. It doesn't matter. In fact, I think the vagueness here is intentional. Because whatever it is, it's not an adequate excuse to keep Moses from doing what God has called him to do. See, God isn't calling Moses to be eloquent. He's calling Moses to be faithful. And the same goes for us. He doesn't care about our eloquence. He cares about our faithfulness. Our faithfulness to do what God has called us to do and to say what God has called us to say. You take the words of the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the Apostle Paul saying this. Like Apostle Paul, who's written much of the New Testament saying this. He's saying, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's honesty right there. That's vulnerability right there. I can relate to this way better than I can relate to the the gifted, eloquent communicator, the brilliant communicator person. See, Paul's opening and admitting here, he's not coming with eloquence or words of wisdom. He's not being asked to do the TED Talks of his day. No, he's simply proclaiming Christ. That's it. He's not, he's just laying it out for the truth. He's saying, here is who God is. Creator, sustainer, lawgiver, holy, holy, holy. And this is who we are in relation to him. Sinful man deserving of his judgment. But here's Christ. Christ who who came and lived and died in order to reconcile sinners to holy God. Oh, sinner, how will you respond? That's Paul's message in a nutshell. He's proclaiming the gospel over and over and over again. Why? To demonstrate the power of the Spirit. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of 
God. You've heard me say this once. You'll hear me say it a thousand times. Anything that we can talk someone into, someone else can come along and talk them right out of it. We're not trying to be eloquent. We're not trying to be winsome. No eloquence needed, no production needed, no gimmicks, no tricks. We preach Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And it will sound like foolish to the unbelieving. But it demonstrates the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. In other words, it's not about Paul, it's not about Moses, and it's not about any of us. It is all about God and the power of God for the glory of God. So look at how God graciously responds to Moses in verse 11. The Lord says to him, Who has made your mouth? Who's made man's mouth? It's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer, right? You go over to our little kids area, three to five-year-olds, and say, who made your mouth? And what's the response going to be? God did. God made our mouth. God continues. Who, okay, Moses, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So you take that answer, and let's say Moses did have a speech impediment some form of legitimate disability. And yes, we understand Genesis 3, that all disabilities, all disease are all the product of the fall. This isn't the, the, the way the world is supposed to be. We get that, we understand that. But we also know that God, our God, is a powerful God, powerful enough to heal any disability, any ailment at any time that he wants. He can do it. So it's never a question of whether he can or he can't. He, he can, but it's sometimes he doesn't. Many times he doesn't. But in not healing, he's telling us he has a greater purpose in mind. In not giving us all, all our freedom over our, our fears and not giving us all the confidence in the world in and of ourselves, he, he's telling us there's a greater purpose in mind. He's using our weakness for his glory. I think of the man born blind in John chapter 9. Had lived his entire life blind. The disciples even asking with a poor understanding of, of why blindness would exist. Rabbi, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man would be born blind. Jesus responding back to him. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why he was born blind. And yes, he was healed, but he lived his entire life blind. From a little child all the way up, blind. So that the works of God might be displayed in him. So we return to Exodus and God's response to Moses. Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? I'm saying, I do. I'm in control of all of this. And clearly, we in our finite minds, we don't understand the answers to all the why questions regarding our, our various ailments that we're faced with or will be faced with. And there's nothing wrong with asking God for healing. There's nothing wrong for asking God for more knowledge. There's nothing wrong for asking God for more confidence. But we need to understand this. Whatever disability one may have, or lack of confidence one may have, or lack of education that one may have, it is no excuse to not do what God has called us to do. Why? Because you have that disability. 
We have that weakness. We have that fear. We have that trembling. So that the power of God might be displayed through us. Just look at verse 12. Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth. Here he says it again. I will be with you. And specifically, I will be with your mouth. I'm going to be with your words and teach you what you shall speak. God making it clear that Moses has no excuse not to do what he has called him to do. And neither do we. But how does Moses respond? With a fifth and final excuse. I don't want to. You're getting honest now. The heart of the matter is coming to the table. I don't want to. Verse 13. Oh my Lord, please send somebody else. Not me. I don't want to do this. And I look at this, and I look at Moses' response, and I'm like, well, at least he said please. Please send someone else. But the truth is, it's now it's on the table. He said it out loud. God's already known this is about Moses all along, but now Moses has said it. And I don't think I have to point out the application here, but I will. Moses is full of excuses, and we are full of excuses. I can't go because, I can't give because, I can't share because. We have an excuse for everything. I, I don't have time. I got this, so I got that. And I, 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 we're all there. And I, I'm not saying there is never a legitimate reason that we can't do something. There are, but not nearly as many as we conjure up in our minds. We're always conjuring up an excuse for why we cannot do something. And when we get down to the heart of the matter, the reason that we're so full of excuses is sometimes when it comes right down to the reality, we don't want to. We don't want to. And our not wanting to, it could very well stem from our perceived weaknesses, our, our fear, our lack of confidence, our perceived inabilities. It could, it could be coming out of that. But when we say, I, I can't, we're, we're forgetting that God said, I will be with you. I can't, God. God said, I will be with you. Remember, I will be with you. And when we say, I don't want to, we're deliberately, deliberately disobeying what God has called us to do. And at the same time, attempting to justify ourselves with our excuses that do not hold water with God. So how does the Lord respond? Verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And that's a first. This is the first time we're told that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, which definitely tells us that our God is a patient God. Because my patience would have worn out a long time ago. After excuse number two, I, I'm coming with the kindling of anger, the fire. I, I'm getting upset in that moment. Not God. He is being gracious and patient in waiting. But it is also the reminder that God experiences anger with our disobedience. But since that's not fun to think about or talk about, that's often just overlooked and replaced with speaking about God's love. But we cannot forget the righteous anger of God. And I say righteous anger because he has every right to be angry with, with Moses here. God has told Moses exactly what to do. He said, I'm going to be with you in the midst of it. Told him who to go to, what to say, how they will respond, what he will do to ensure their deliverance and their provision. And he's given every excuse and answered every excuse that Moses has given. And Moses is still coming back and saying, yep, I don't want to. 
I just, I don't want to do this. Now imagine if you said that to your mom and dad. Imagine if you just said, I don't want to. I'll tell you how my parents are going to respond. Not well. There is going to be a righteous anger that is going to develop within them. And who is Moses speaking to here? Who are we speaking to? God. But in the midst of this righteous anger, look at how God responds. Verse 14 continued. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So what's God's response here? Grace. It's a grace-filled response. And such providential grace that we don't even have time to dive into all the details of. But God is he's still having Moses go, is he not? He's not letting him off the hook. Like, Moses, you're doing this, but now bestowing even more grace as evidence that he is going to be with him. Now think back, just think about the providential grace here. Think about Moses' birth. What was the edict that was handed down from Pharaoh at the time of Moses' birth? To kill every son that was born, right? To cast them in the Nile to, to die. Well, Aaron is three years older than Moses, and meaning he was born before the edict took place. He may vaguely remember that his mom nursed Moses, may remember seeing him or, or hearing about him living in Pharaoh's home, hearing stories about him, but to our knowledge has no real relationship with Moses. So talking about, talk about a lot of why questions that he may have. And now 80 years later, look how God tells Moses he's coming out to meet you. He's coming out to meet you, meaning before Moses even uttered his first excuse, before God ever appeared to Moses at the burning bush, God had already placed it upon Aaron's heart to come toward Midian to meet with Moses. And I cannot begin to tell you how much this encourages this weary soul. Before Moses even issues an excuse, God is already in the process of answering. It's a reminder that God not only hears our prayers, but is in the midst of answering them even before we ask the trials of today, those things that we feel the weight just pressing down upon us may very well be the precursor to answer yours or someone else's prayers 20, 30, 40 years from now. Just think about that. Church, this is our gracious and merciful God at work in every single detail of our lives. Whether when we realize it and when we don't, which is the vast majority of the time, so God sends Aaron to be Moses' mouthpiece and then tells Moses in verse 15, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. So Moses is saying over and over, I can't. He even goes on to say, I don't want to. I don't want to do this. But over and over and over again, God is saying, I will, I will, I will. I will. He's telling him, I will be with you. I'm going to do this. There's no excuses. God's doing this. He's using our weaknesses and our fears and our trembling, our lack of wisdom to demonstrate his power. Now, two things before we close. The first being, what does God mean when he tells Moses, you shall be as God to him? There in verse 16, because that, that sounds a little off. We're just kind of reading through, kind of just reading through it fast. It's like, you shall be as God to him. But it, it's God saying it, so what does he mean here? 
Well, remember, Aaron is the mouthpiece. That's what God has called him to do, to be the mouthpiece. Not to come up with what to say, be the mouthpiece. But who's giving Aaron these words to say? Moses. In verse 16, God telling Moses that Aaron will speak for him before the people. He shall be your mouth. And then verse 15, that Moses shall speak to Aaron and put the words in his mouth. What words? What words is Moses giving Aaron to speak here? The exact words that God has given him. Nothing more, nothing less. And this is what it means for for Moses to be a prophet. He hears from God and he delivers God's word to God's people, either himself or, or through a mouthpiece like Aaron or through his written word that we have before us today. So let's be clear that there are, there are no more prophets like, like Moses today. No more prophets like this today. There, there will never again be another book added to the Bible. There will never again be a word given from the Lord that is an addition to the Bible. No one can ever be like Moses Moses and say, God told me or I have a word from the Lord and it be anything other than what is already affirmed and revealed in Scripture. God clearly speaks to us through His word and is affirmed with one of the things He's calling us to do by His word. But none of us are like Moses. But all of us are like Aaron. And how are we to be like Aaron? In that we are to speak and to share what God has given us to share through his prophetic word. We're not called to be eloquent. We're called to be faithful. Faithful in proclaiming the words and the message that God has given us to proclaim from his word. That's it. That's our mission. We don't have to come up with what to say. We take God's word and we be the mouthpiece in delivering it to God's people. And we're not discerning who God's people are. We're just giving it to everybody. We're, like we said last week, we are not soil testers. We're seed sowers. We go out and we proclaim the word near and far to everyone and we trust God to give the results. Now the second thing is found in verse 17. As God is ending the conversation, he's telling Moses to go. It's kind of like, I've had enough excuses. This is it. I'm ending the conversation. We're done. God says, and take your hand, take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. And it's another one of those verses when we're just kind of reading through, kind of, man, all this dramatic stuff from, from the burning bush and stuff that's coming. We can be like, yeah, okay, take your staff. No big deal. Move on. And we just keep on rolling, kind of look over the verse. But it's important that he's telling Moses to take his staff. And here's why. It's not because there's anything independently effective about the staff. It's a staff. It's a wooden stick. It's not powerful in any way by itself. But in the hands of Moses, it's a sign of God's presence and his power. A continual reminder of God saying, I will be with you. A continual reminder of God's promise to Moses and to Israel. We think about other reminders, other signs that he's given throughout the Old Testament. Think about the rainbow that is given to Noah as a sign of God's covenant promise. Or the the sign of circumcision that is given to Abraham of, of God's covenant promise. There's nothing independently effective about either of these signs. Neither one. 
But both are reminders of God's covenantal promises, reminders of God's presence and his power. And they're invitations to God's people to believe God and to respond in faith. To believe that God will do what he's promised to do. And church, we could stop here and be immensely encouraged by everything that we have just looked at and say, God is faithful to keeping his promises. He is faithful and just in keeping his promises. But there is further application for us here as well, especially when we begin to look at the New Testament and think about the New Testament in mind. Think about it. What signs has, have we been given as reminders of his promises? Yes, we have the resurrection of which we proclaim. That's how we know all of these things are, are true. Because Christ rose from the grave. Amen. But what signs are we as the church instructed to practice in order to remember and declare the, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? The new life that we who believe in him have in Christ. What signs are we given? Baptism in the Lord's Supper. These are the two ordinances of the church. Neither being independently effective or powerful in and of themselves. The water is water. It doesn't save. The wine or the juice, it's just that. It's not Christ's blood. It doesn't turn into Christ's blood. The bread is bread. Or a sorry excuse for bread that we use. It's not and does not turn into the literal body, literal blood of Christ. Taking the Lord's Supper has no ability to make us right with God. Neither ordinance is independently effective or powerful in and of themselves. But what they represent is baptism being the public sign of a believer's entrance into the kingdom of God, into the family of God. Both new, the new believer and the local church, to the best of the church's knowledge, affirming that this person has responded to the gospel in repentance and faith and is now a child of God. So baptism is the public sign of entry into the family of God. Thus the reason there are no unbaptized Christians anywhere in the New Testament. It's the first thing that the Lord commands of those who follow him to be baptized. Again, the reason there are no unbaptized Christians in the New Testament. And then we as the church, that's we who are baptized believers, recognized members of the family of God, then partake and continue to partake of the Lord's table as a sign of our continued faith in the promises of God. Until either Christ returns or we die. It's the continual reminder that our God is with us. It's the continual reminder of our weaknesses in his power. It's the continual reminder of the faithfulness in keeping his promises. It's the reminder of what we are called to do. To go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Remember, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's with us. So here's the, the thread running through chapter 3 and through most of chapter 4. All of the, this, this stage of the burning bush specifically pertains to the application that we see to us throughout all of this. How God tells us what to do. 
Again, go make disciples of all nations. Here's the message, go. Here's the mission, go. Here's who you're to go to, go. He tells us what to say. He tells us how to say, he tells us to tell people about who God is. Tell them about man's relation to God and how Christ is our only hope in life and in death, that through Christ we can be reconciled to God, declared right before God, and calling people to respond. God tells us how people will respond, that his people will believe and those who are not his people will not. He tells us what he's done to ensure the deliverance and the provision So the question today is, how will we respond? With excuses or with faithful obedience? Maybe you've never believed today. Maybe you've claimed to believe and been in your mind, you're thinking, I've never truly believed. Or maybe you're just here today, like, I have never believed this. Everything you're even saying today, Pastor, is just kind of like, woo! I would love to talk with you. If this is you today, I want to invite you to believe. I want want you to believe and to know that you can be declared right before holy God, that you can have a new life that is found in him. I would love to talk with you about this and to encourage you to to follow up this affirmation of faith with a public sign of, of baptism. Or maybe you do believe in Christ. You do, you do believe, you claim Christ, you know Christ, but have never been obedient to following in believer's baptism. I would love to talk with you about this as well. Whether after the service or set up, send me an email, we'll set up a time. Or maybe you do believe. You have been baptized. You are partaking of the Lord's Supper, but aren't being faithful in fulfilling God's calling upon your life to make disciples of all nations. And like Moses, you have ample reasons why you can't. I want to challenge you today to surrender those insecurities, excuses, even idols before the Lord today, and, and to take that step forward in obedience. Right now, I want to ask that as we who have been baptized and who are trusting in Christ as our only hope in life and in death to come to the table. And today, we're going to do it a little bit different than we have. We're still going to come, but we're going to take time as, as, the, as we're going into song and we begin to sing. We're going to ask that you come up at any point during that song you take the elements, you take the cup, you're going to have the, the juice and, and the bread stacked one on top of another. And you just take that back to your seat and, and do not partake of it until I come back and we're going to take it together as a church family. So just kind of hold that there, continue to sing, continue to respond, and, and then we're going to partake it together as a church family. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, again, we give thanks. Giving thanks that even when we say, I can't, or even I don't want to, you are still gracious with us. But let us also remember that our disobedience rightly angers you. So forgive us for our disobedience. Convict us each of areas where we are currently walking in disobedience. And let us instead walk in faith. Trusting in your promises. Trusting that you are with us. 
And we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.